All right, let's open up to Second Chronicles chapter 8 tonight. So oh, through First Chronicles and going into Second Chronicles, we've seen David's reign over Israel, then him passing the torch, per se, over to Solomon, who would end up taking over the reins. And we've been looking over Solomon's reign the past couple uh, Wednesdays, uh, seeing everything that he's done and everything he has accomplished. And we come to chapter 8, and we're going to see a lot of his accomplishments that he has, uh, he has done for the nation of Israel. <clears throat> but we're also going to see a lot of his compromise or the beginning of some of his compromise that he, uh, he has here as well. And um, we, we think about David, and, and often we put David up on a pedestal just thinking about how great of a man of God he was, because the Bible itself says that David was a man of God. And we look at David and we can relate with him because he would fall into sin, but what would he do immediately after? He would repent. And he lived a life of repenting uh, before the Lord for the sins that he had committed. So he truly had a heart that was after God, but living in this shell that we're living in with this flesh, we can often fall short. And, And that's what the Bible says, is we fall short of the glory of God. You know, but through repentance and through accepting of Jesus Christ, we, we can gain that salvation and, and become the men and women of God, just like David was. And, uh, but there comes a point where we, we see in Solomon's life, and in, the, in, in Second Chronicles, it doesn't talk a lot about his, uh, kind of his failures and all that stuff. It kind of just shows some of the things he does, and we move along. First, uh, first Second Kings showed more of that. But we look at Solomon and the wisdom that he had that God had granted him, and all the riches that he had. And I think Solomon got to a point, and we'll see all these accomplishments, to where his, his, he, he thought that he probably knew more than God. And, and, and he was going to go through things, which in the book of Deuteronomy tells us that the kings, if they had a king over Israel, that they should act a certain way and do things a certain way. And we're going to see Solomon pretty much going against those things whether it was from collecting horses and chariots and such, he went against it. It was almost like his mind was seared and numb to the things of God, and he thought he knew better. And I know, there, I know there's times in our lives that we have heard the Holy Spirit tell us something to do, and we kind of ignored it. We thought we knew better. We've all been in that boat. But we see Solomon doesn't really repent of it, and we see towards the end of his reign where he starts to worship other gods. And doesn't do what the Lord has asked him to truly do. But we also see the grace God had had on Solomon's life as he, as God would allow him to go through these different things. But in the end, there was a payment for it. <clears throat> so we're going to start in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house. Now at this point, it's 24 years in his reign. It took him four years before he would actually start building the temple. It said that the cities which Hiram had given to Solomon, Solomon built them, and he settled the children of Israel there. Now, Hiram didn't necessarily give him these cities. Remember in First in Kings 9 that Solomon had actually given these cities over to Hiram because Hiram had gave him gold to help build the temple. But when Hiram got to these cities, which were around Galilee, he said, these cities are substandard. These are not good cities. My brother, why did you even give these to me? <laughs> Basically, he's, he's telling Solomon, 
So Solomon must have probably bought them back from Hiram. And he probably and he ended up probably rebuilding these cities and fixing them up probably better than what they were when he handed them over to, to Hiram. So he ended up using them and settling uh, a lot of uh, the Israelites there. So he probably made these cities a lot better. In verse 3, it says, And Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and seized it. We don't hear much about Solomon fighting any kind of battles or seizing any land because a lot of that got done uh, during David's reign. And Solomon's reign was pretty much known as a peaceful reign. But we see here there was an area that was seized by him. He did have to go into battle, and, and no doubt blood was probably shed for this. So he, he was not immune to having to go to battle, but we don't hear about it as much. Because for the most part, his reign uh, was peaceful, and David took care of those, those issues for him before he even got to the throne. Uh, verse 4, he said, He also built Tadmor in the wilderness, and all the stored cities which he built in Hamath. He built up Beth Haran and lower Beth Haran, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars. Also Baalath and all the stored cities that Solomon had, and all the chariot cities and the cities of Calvary, and, the, and all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. And the people who were left of the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, Jebusites, who were not of Israel. That is, the descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel did not destroy. From there, Solomon raised forced uh, labor, as it is to this day. So, <clears throat> we see Solomon going in, building cities, building these stored cities, fortified cities. It even says cities that had bars. So remember, he collected all these horses, he collected all these chariots, a lot of wealth. Uh, and so in a lot of these cities, he would build and he would store these items there. Uh, he probably had cities that were strictly military cities, possibly, to where his chariots and these horses uh, were stored. He probably had cities where his wealth was stored. So he, he had these cities built, and, and this is where he stored a lot of things. Also, down in verses uh, 7, it says about the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, all, this, all the parasites that were there. These are people who should have been knocked off when the nation of Israel had went in to take over the land. But these are people who remained there. And they would end up becoming a thorn in Israel's sight at some point. So Solomon... Instead, if Solomon would have went in and slaughtered these people and took them out, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and assume that God probably would have been okay with that because that was the first instructions given to Israel when they crossed over into the Promised Land was to destroy those who were on the land because they were not going to go for God. They were, he knew with his foresight that they were not going to turn and worship him. So to get rid of them and to get rid of the headaches that would come, they should have destroyed them. And Solomon could have done the same thing here, but Solomon seen an opportunity to add to his wealth. And he would tax them heavily and put them into forced labor. And that's basically what he would do. But you can look at these people who were in the land of Canaan and were not destroyed. We can look at sin in our life that is not destroyed. We should not have a hint of sin in our life. We should not have a hint of of any belonging or doing with sin, sinful activities, we shouldn't have it. But often we don't get rid of our sins in our life. And we'll say, well, 
let's look at this practically. You know, it's not that bad of a thing. It's not really hurting anyone. You know, does anybody really know about it? God knows about it. You know, and, 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 and over time, some of these sins that we, we harbor in our souls is just, they, they fester and they can, get, they can infect us bad. So we need to get rid of those sins in our life, just like the Canaanites needed to be driven out of the land and, and, and killed off because it, it, they would become a festering sore to Israel their entire lives, probably still to this day in, in some aspect, you know. And, you know, God's not going to be mocked. He says, whatever a man sows, he will reap. That's what Paul told us, right, in Galatians. If we sow sin into our lives, we're going we're gonna to reap the consequences of that. If we sow the word into our life, we're going to reap the consequences of that. So it works both ways, good and bad. And with Solomon sowing into these Canaanites by, by putting them into forced labor and allowing them to, to stay alive and allow them to be amongst his people, they end up paying the price and sowing, sowing what he was reaping uh, by allowing them to stay in. But we need to deal with sin when it rears his head. We need, we need to cut the head off right there and deal with it when it shows up. We, we can't let it linger. We can't let it live amongst us. We have to be done with it. And so we see Solomon allowing these Canaanite people to stay there. and He ends up getting revenue from them by taxing them when he probably should have just cut them off. In verse 10, it says, But Solomon did not make the children of Israel servants for his work. Some were men of war, captains of his officers, captains of his chariots and his cavalry, and others were chiefs of the officials of King Solomon, 250 who ruled over the people. So now we see here that Solomon didn't take his own people, the Israelites, and didn't make them slaves for labor. But he would have them do other things, force them into the military work, uh, force them to be officers and leaders and other, other aspects. And in 1 Samuel, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, verse 12, it says that, talking about if Israel was to have a king, these things could happen. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow the ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And it goes on to talk more about what a king may do to the people if Israel had a king. Because Israel having a king was not God's first choice. But they cried for it and they cried for it, and eventually he let them have what they wanted. But it says here that he would do that. He would make them captains, and he would he would make them reap and sow the land and all these different things. And we see Solomon doing here, forcing the Israelites to go into the military service, uh, to, to work the chariots and what have you. He's doing exactly what the scripture had read. In verse 11, it says, Now Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her. For he said, my wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the, places to, uh, because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. So here begins some of the downfall of Solomon. He's marrying foreign wives, and foreign wives as in wives that are worshiping other gods. 
And it was very strange for a, a child of Pharaoh to actually marry someone from another kingdom like they were doing. But it was political things that were uh, definitely going on here. You know, Solomon had, what, seven, 700 wives, 300 concubines. It wasn't all love. It couldn't have been with that many. But a lot of it was political reasons for it to keep peace with other kingdoms. Now, some of it could have been love. Some of them it could have been lust. I mean, you can probably guess on what all that was. But with Pharaoh's daughter coming here, he moved her away from the city of David, where David had actually had his house set. And David had the ark near, probably not in his house, because it never says it was in his house, but I'm, he had it near his house at some point. And he was recognizing a separation needed to be made between this pagan princess and the ark, that she could not live or be around these areas where the ark had been. So he moved her and ended up building. It must be nice to have the money just to build her, her own palace, too. But built her own house for her and moved her away. But here we see Solomon's downward slide. First, he, what, he would trade horses with Egypt, trade to get horses for Egypt, did these chariots from Egypt. And that's probably where his dealings with the king of Egypt, that's probably where he ended up taking the hand of Pharaoh's daughter because of uh, one of these. He used a lot of idolatrous workers to build the temple. Uh, a lot of the stuff that went in the temple with the, uh, with the gentleman who was the architect for it probably put a lot of idolatrous ideas into the temple, whether it's figurines or pillars or what have you. It was not solely about God. We also see here that a lot of places in the temple were, repla- were replaced with idolatrous type symbolism. And uh, G. Campbell Morgan said, to build a house for Pharaoh's daughters outside the holy city is to open the gate sooner or later to Pharaoh's gods. And we've seen in the story of Solomon in, in Second Kings how that's exactly uh, what happened. He would eventually, with all these foreign wives coming in, can you imagine 700 of these wives all getting at Solomon, wanting to have things built for they can worship their gods? Constantly in his ear, constantly talking to him, I need a temple for my God. Well, I need one for my God, too. And eventually Solomon would break down uh, to to the needs and the wants of these, these, these foreign gods, these foreign women that had had infiltrated Israel, and not to, not to count the Canaanites that were still in the land, who was definitely had a, probably had an influence on the people there as well. And I'm not just talking about a husband and a wife, but what influences, what type of people influence us? What kind of relationships do we have? Now, we can't necessarily isolate ourselves from the world. We, we have to be a salt and light to the world. We've got to go and be witnesses to them, absolutely. But what kind of people in our, in, our, in our core circle do we actually have around us? Are there people who are going to build us up and want, and want to encourage us in our walk, or are there people who are going to mock and make fun of our God? And we've got to think about that when we start having relationships with different people. We've got to think about the type of house that we're building. As a family, we want to build our house with our children to be able to worship the Lord. We want to be able to have a strong foundation there. That way, when my children grow out 
and they're on their own, they'll know what type of people to associate with because we've taught them from a young age. They may have rebellious moments, but ultimately they're going to know who they need to associate with. And if we're not building a house for God, then we're building a house for the world. We're building a house to house our sin. And that's exactly what Solomon was doing. He was building a kingdom. But as time went on, that those houses he would build for these other gods were, were houses for just that, other gods. Not the God of the Bible, not the God of Israel. And then he so slowly started slipping from that point. Verse 12, it says, Then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before uh, the vestibule. According to the daily rate of offering, according to the commandment of Moses, for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the three appointed yearly feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. And according to the order of David, his father, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their service, the Levites for their duties to praise and to serve before the priests as the duty of each day required, and the gatekeepers by their division at each gate. For so David, the man of God, had commanded. So we see here at this particular moment in Solomon's life, he is still... Uh, still has a separation between the pagan gods and Yahweh. He is still wanting to follow the statue that Moses had put out and his father David had put out in worshiping God. He's still wanting to do that at this point in time. But as time goes on, that strain is going to be there. We see him keeping and establishing the course with the priest. And their divisions, we see him staying with the gatekeepers who, who had their own divisions. We had the, those who would worship day and night. It was still happening here in the temple at the time. And thus the priests ministered in the sanctuary and in the inner courts according to all their responsibilities. So Solomon was still ensuring that these, these practices were going on. Which is a good thing, but he was also dabbling in idolatry. He was also dabbling with the sins of having all these married to all these women. God allowed it, but God did not condone it. He was not happy with Solomon's marital status. This was, this was not according to God's will. But we see that this sin that Solomon and this downfall of Solomon would eventually get him. In verse 15, it says, They did not depart from the command uh, of the king's of the king to the priests and Levites concerning any matter or concerning the treasury. Now all the work of Solomon was well ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was complete. So we see that the temple was finally completed. All of the uh, functions of the temple were starting to happen. He ended up building his house already. So he's accomplished the temple. He's built his own house. He's got a lot of riches. He got all these storage cities and all these uh, fortified cities. And he's uh, rebuilt the cities that Hiram end up selling him back. So he's, he's really building the nation. And they're almost at the zenith of, of, of where Israel will be. They're at the top at this moment. And we're reading about all these accomplishments. But sprinkled in there is all the disobedience that Solomon had to. 
So just because uh, he hasn't been caught yet in all this disobedience, and just because we haven't been caught in our disobedience, doesn't mean that we won't at some point in time. God is not to be mocked, amen? So it says, now all the work, we just talked about all the work of Solomon was uh, well ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was complete. Then Solomon went to Zion, Geber, and Elath on the coast, uh, on the sea coast in the land of Edom. So David had conquered uh, Edom and Solomon had control of these ports that were, that were on the Red Sea. And uh, also on the Gulf of Aquaba. So he had these ports. And remember, he, Hiram is still in his life at this moment. In verse 18, it says, And Hiram sent him ships by the hand of his servants, and servants who knew the sea. They went with the servants of Solomon to Ophir, and acquired 450 talents of gold from there, and brought it to King Solomon. So here Solomon continuously, year by year, would get gold in from these, from these adventures that, that he would take out on sea and from other taxations and everything else. So Solomon was constantly building his wealth. And it says here that he, he would end up buying ships from Hiram and that Hiram's people would actually teach some of the Israelites the way of living on the sea. And, and for a moment, Israel had a small navy there that would go out on these excursions. But the Jews were not very seafaring people. We don't see a lot about that in the Bible, about them being on boats. This is probably one of the, besides the fishing with the disciples and everything, this is probably one of the only moments that you really see them out on the sea taking these excursions, going to find this gold. Now, Solomon would get all this gold, and he would, seems to get it fairly easy. A steady stream of wealth was coming in. Silver and gold was probably nothing in the time of Solomon in that kingdom in that age. And he would get it fairly easy from these excursions. But let's think how easy he's getting it and how hard it was for David to get it. Solomon would send his people out on a boat, send them out to some of the maybe neighboring countries. And according to the Bible, it seems like they would just come back with it. No effort for it whatsoever. But let's compare this to the 120,000 talents of gold David was able to acquire on his conquest. There was bloodshed for that. There was work. There was sacrifice made to get the gold that David would bring in. And it ended up bringing in more gold through his conquest than what Solomon did, bringing it in through these excursions that they would take and that's telling me here that the easy route is not always the best route and if you're going to have a walk of faith uh, with God that is not going to be an easy route is not going to be all peaches and cream it's going to it's going to be a hard route we're going to have our moments that it's going to be great and there's going to be a lot of joy but there's going to be a lot of heartache and a lot of pain and a lot of sacrifice when we we uh, walk with Christ but in the end the gift is going to be well worth it. What we're going to gain from it, the reward is going to be well worth it. Spending eternity with him. So anything worth having is, is not easy. It's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be sacrifice. It's going to be work. 
And we see Solomon in this chapter with a lot of achievements, but we also see a lot of compromise in his life and a lot of disobedience towards God. Some of it subtle, some of it just plain as day. So let's learn that we should not compromise our faith. We shouldn't do what Solomon would do, but let's do what David did. So when he did compromise, he repented and asked for forgiveness and turned back to God. He didn't stay on that road of sin and despair like Solomon did. Amen? Father, we thank you for this word tonight. And we just give you praise and glory, Lord, that you have made a way, Lord, that when we fail and then we sin and, and we walk off the path, Lord, that we have a way back to that path, Lord. And that you, you forgive us, Lord, when we repent. And we thank you for that blood that was shed for us to give us that forgiveness, Father. I pray blessings over each and every individual here tonight. And travel in traveling mercies, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.